Go to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Um, a lot of stuff on my heart. Not just for tonight. You can't give all your stuff in one time. Even though numerous times I've tried. Um, just some exciting things I feel the Lord's saying in the upcoming year. And um, the hope to to be able to communicate that clearly to our church and see our church keep maturing into the kind of church that fulfills its mission of seeing people transformed by Jesus. That's our mission. And I would hope that if you've been here more than once, you would have heard some variation of that because we're adamant about it. It's what we're committed to. We believe that encountering Jesus and yielding your life to Jesus leads you into a journey of transformation where you become more and more Christ-like. And the idea is that as we become more Christ-like, we influence the people around us to also be transformed. Because what I believe our end game is, if you could phrase it that way, it's probably not the best way of phrasing it, the telos of our vision So if you get into some philosophy, the telos of our mission is to see cities transformed by Jesus. Because the kingdom of God is to advance, not just in some distant time, but now. Otherwise, Jesus' prayer makes no sense for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we have many things to be concerned about, do we not? I mean, there's, there's lots of things wrong with the world. And it, it's one thing to say there's lots of things wrong with the world in all those faraway places of the world. It's another thing when you start feeling it yourself, firsthand, the problems of the world. And there is a, a cloud of despair that is covering our generation Despair, another way of understanding despair is hopelessness. Despair is the inability to see a positive end. No hope. Lose hope. Hopelessness. Uh, And it's not hard to give in to that. And whole institutions are designed to convince you you have no hope except through them. And one of the challenges of the church, one of my, I'll just say my, one of my challenges as a pastor and a parent is to introduce the scriptures and the Christian faith and the stories of our faith, the stories of scripture, uh, introduce them to our children in such a way that they can connect Uh, and see God's hand and come to a place of awareness and recognition of our need for Jesus and our need to submit and yield to him. And so so making making our faith make sense to our children, but then not allowing those same stories to remain childish in your minds as adults, to continually look fresh at 
the dirty messiness of these stories that honestly, most of them are inappropriate for children. That's a real difficult tension and balance. Uh, And I found it quite difficult (laughs) as a parent and as a pastor. Uh, And so I always want to see part part of recognizing scripture, not just in principle, though principles are important, but through the way scripture is communicated to us is primarily through story. And so those stories are intended to connect with us, to, to act as mirrors of the human condition. And this specific story, the main storyline, the meta-narrative of scripture is all pointing to the need for salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul tells his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, 15, 16, 17, somewhere in there, <clears throat> where he says, all scripture is God-breathed, right? The verse before that says that you, you are to know, you're to be, stay familiar with these scriptures that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Apparently, Paul's framework when he, when he reads scripture is that it's to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And you read a lot of these stories and you're like, Paul, I don't know what you're seeing, but I just see like just really stupid people. <laughs> That's most of the time. Uh, so, so a challenge as adults is to be willing to look at everything you think you know, always in fresh light. Not, not removing the foundation of what you know, but just not allowing what you know to remain childish. Because I, I look at many times the way scriptures communicated to children, I'm like, yeah, that's not, that's not what that says. Um, and I understand because it's hard to communicate most of what's in scripture because it's, it's like, you know, rated R, truthfully. Like if you made a movie exactly the way scripture's communicated, it would be rated R, maybe more. And as adults, uh, it's a lot easier to keep these stories childish because childish stories don't have a lot of impact on you. You want them to have impact on your children, but you're able to keep a safe distance from them. They're cute, they're clever, but they're not real. And as adults and as a pastor, what my, my attempt is, is um, not just to allow or, or communicate, recommunicate these stories in such a way that as adults we connect with them, but that we don't just connect with the story, we see its connection to the real world. Because a lot of the way the American church has communicated the Christian faith is through, through principle. Nothing wrong with that. But if you're not aware of the wholeness of Scripture and its story that it communicates, you might think that it's giving you a set of rules or principles that you remain in control, and if you'll just apply them properly, you can get control of your life. And it's just a wrong, that's a wrong interpretation of Scripture. The story is supposed to transform us in such a way that we see its connection to the real world. So what do these kinds of stories have to do with things like a pandemic? Out-of-control inflation out-of-control government spending. Tragic loss in your personal life that just happened. The grieving and sorrow and pain that comes with loss. Like what, 
how do these connect? And most of the American church has not been able to keep that connection. And so you have a massive exodus from the church. And I have a deep concern. Yes, as a pastor, but also as a parent who's raising five children, I want to see the Christian faith be passed down to my children and their generation. Now, I'm, I'm responsible to my children, but I feel a measure of responsibility to my children's generation. That as Jude, or Judah, the brother of Jesus, wrote in his small little epistle in verse 3 and 4, that he's writing concerning our common faith, that was once for all handed down to the saints, handed down. There's a sense where there has to be generational handoffs of the Christian faith. And in the process, it not deteriorate, it not become cliche, it not become glazed over with a whatever cultural, whatever's culturally accepted veneer over that faith. I've, I've, got, I've got a series brewing in me, and I haven't decided if I'm ready to do it yet or not, because it's going to make people mad. Not that I'm afraid of people being mad. I just like to be strategic when I'm making people mad. I, I, I want to, and the reason I say series is because it's really hard for me to say anything of worth in one sermon. It takes me anywhere from five to 15 to say anything that makes sense. Um, but I want to do a series on the gospel. And you're like, well, that, that's not that complicated. Well, if you have a dumbed down, powerless gospel, sure, it's easy. Well, I can do that in less than five minutes. I can do it in an elevator pitch. It's just, my problem is that's not the gospel the apostles communicated. And part of communicating the gospel is you also have to give people awareness of false gospels. They're just outright wrong. They're people proclaiming good news, but it's propaganda. In the same way, Caesar Augustus' birth announcement, his birthday, he sent evangelists to preach the good news of salvation and peace through Caesar Augustus. proclaimed as the good news. So you have to be able to recognize false gospels. But the trickier problem is to recognize distorted gospels that are somewhat true or even mostly true and know where they're strong and what we can say, I agree, and where they're weak and distorted and say, I can't go there. But to do that, I have to poke on all the ways you've gotten it wrong. And in the process, all the ways I've gotten it wrong. That was a, that was a heartier amen on that one. It's okay. I, I readily admit, I'm not always right all the time about everything. Because I think it's because of distorted gospels, and in some cases, false gospels, that the American church has just bought in hook, line, and sinker without real coherent thought real grappling with truth that has made 
the gospel proclaimed by most churches powerless and therefore not connected to actual living, actual life, or the actual problems of the real world. So when I say it's a challenge, I'm saying like that is a big challenge and one that just sermons aren't, aren't going to truly shift a whole generation. That's way too much pressure on people with microphones. It's the church. It's not the pastor, it's the church. It's the church that is a carrier of the gospel of Jesus Christ and has to pass it down from generation to generation because, I mean, is there, this might be unfair to admit, so I'm not gonna make you raise your hand, but if I ask this question, you don't have to raise your hand. But how many have children or grandchildren that are far from God? And you're concerned. How many have young children and you're concerned? I mean, that's where I'm at. <clears throat> and my children are extremely churched. <laughs> and, and some of you have them in class, so you know what I'm talking about. They're really churched, but every person has to come, has to cross the threshold where the faith of my childhood that sometimes is my parents' faith or my kids' teachers' faith or my pastor's faith, my youth pastor's faith becomes my faith. And that threshold is hard to cross and there's not like a one-size-fits-all. It's not a, well, this year, if it doesn't happen in this year, it's never gonna happen. And so, so I, I, I've spent, interestingly, my, my advent like pondering has been how, how are we passing the faith down to our children? It's not like that's my first time I've ever thought about that. It's just like, for whatever reason, that's the question that's just been rolling around this whole Advent to me. Is how, how, how are our children receiving the faith? And what is our responsibility as the church? And my responsibility as a pastor shepherding the church to give our children the best chance. You can't make anybody do anything. It's either manipulation or tyranny. And neither of those are good or godly options. Don Quixote. I don't know if you've, read, if you've ever read that book. It's big and intimidating. However, there's one line that is in that novel that says, it's the prerogative and charm of beauty to win hearts. And I think we've stopped winning hearts. We've been trying to convince minds, but we haven't won hearts. And as much as I want your mind convinced, you do need a new mind, because ours is terrible. This, this is, like, the, the, the muscle in between our heads is pretty messed up. Like, right inside here between your ears, that's what I meant, between your heads. That's too, anything two heads is a monster, so don't, it's not what I'm talking about. And so we have to be able to approach our scriptures and read these stories and not just try to have our minds convinced, which they need to be renewed, but also our hearts won by what's there, even the confusing parts. And when I look at the problems of our world and how is God working, how is God going to continue to work? Because I do believe that the faith is preserved from generation to generation. There's just, there's, but there's just not a guarantee that that's going to be a lot of people. 
well, well, how has God worked? And there's a, there's a psalm in the third book, book three of Psalms. Psalm 73 starts book three of Psalms. And it, it, Psalm 73 is this pondering, like, why are the wicked prospering and the faithful failing? It's a reasonable question. Correct? That's a reasonable question that isn't new to my generation, like the generation that we're living in. Because I would say that that would probably be the same question is how come the greedy arrogant are succeeding, corruption succeeds, and faithfulness and truth and morality generally leads to a harder less successful life. Am I not allowed to just say exactly what you're thinking, but aren't allowed to say in church? Because you've probably been fed a, a distorted gospel that believe in Jesus, everything will be just fine for you. Well, if that rattled your cage... There's more coming. (laughs) The next chapter in Psalms starts with a lament that's just like, God, where are you? Like, have you noticed that the world is falling apart? And not just the world, like we, your people, are falling apart. Our temple's just in, in rubble. Our people are scattered and it's our rebellion that's done it. And like, where's the prophet's voice? It's like verse 10 ish. It says like, there's no longer a prophet among us and we don't hear your words. Like how long, how long are we to live in that kind of scenario? And like immediately the psalmist pivots in verse 12 and says, yet, So in the midst of lament, sorrow, destruction, pain, darkness, in the middle of that, there is a yet. So that would mean there's two parallel realities. There's a reality that I see. There's a reality that I, I, I feel and I'm experiencing in the natural that seems to be overwhelming. It seems to be destructive. It seems to be full of hopelessness and despair. But apparently, the person who communes with God and knows how to pray can experience a second reality. Yet, God, my King, is from of old. Meaning like, this is not his first rodeo. Yet, God, my King, is from of old. Working salvation in the midst of the earth. Yes, there's, there's so much wrong. And it's like, and the things we could list probably are just barely 1% of all that's wrong. And that's the reality that you might be experiencing. And yet, in the midst of that, 
there is another reality that is contingent upon God being our king, our recognition of who's really in charge. God, my king, is from of old. And what is God the king doing? He's working salvation in the midst of the earth. So what is God doing in the country that just experienced that massive tsunami and killed hundreds of people? He's working salvation in the midst of the earth. What about the tyrannical governments that are just out of control? I think you, I mean, I'm sure you can guess any number of them. What is he doing? What is he doing in the middle of all that corruption, darkness, and destruction? He's working salvation in the midst of the earth. And what's he doing in your life? Working salvation in the midst of your life. So how do we close the gap (laughs) between what we feel, which is real, and what is true, which is even more real, that he's working salvation in the midst of the earth. And when I read the story, what we would just say the nativity story, the story of Jesus's birth, it shows exactly what God is like. It shows exactly how he's working in all the places you didn't expect with all the people you don't expect. No deep teaching, just make you think. Luke 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, from the story right before this, Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Gabriel's word to Joseph in the dream, don't be afraid. The angel's word to the shepherd in the hillside, don't be afraid. The angel's word to Mary, don't be afraid. What do you think heaven has to tell earth? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Salvation. Jesus' name means salvation. He's working Jesus in the earth. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, an extremely reasonable question. How will this be? I am a virgin. 
And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am your servant. Park that word in your mind. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word. Now hold this and fast forward a couple verses into the song of Mary's called Mary's Magnificat where Mary of the Holy Spirit says from verse 46, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Looked on the humble estate of his servant. He looked. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who, <clears throat> he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever." Now, just pulling just a couple, just a couple things in connecting it with, we got big problems in the world and there's another reality that God's working salvation in the midst of the earth. And there's no guarantee that everybody will participate in that. And as the apostles in all of their epistles continually repetitively said, this is open to all, but there's, all will not receive this. So who gets to participate in this? God is working salvation in the midst of the earth, but who checks into that reality? Like who connects to that salvation that's working in the midst of the earth? Don't just, you don't just put it in some subtle cliche. Well, well, Jesus, or Jesus is the reason for the season. Like cliches are not going to get you through this generation, Okay. I have no idea about previous generations, but I can definitively say my faith nearly fell apart when it was built on cliches. So there's that. Well, if you take the most dramatic moment of God's entry into the world, the virgin birth, how did God work salvation in this. Another series brewing in my head is the Jesus way and showing how the scriptures contrast and juxtapose the Jesus way over and against other ways. And in Jesus's day, there were five, let's see if I can name them. There might be six, the Herodians, the Sadducees, 
the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. And like Essenes. And none of these you'll find in your Old Testament. (laughs) So you're just left with who are these people and where did they come from? And those were all the different economic and political parties and religious parties of the day. And they had a way that they were working in the earth. And Jesus works in contrast, in redemptive, in sometimes subversive ways to each of those ways. The Jesus way is a whole new reality. And I give you the key. It's not the answer, but it is the key that you find here in this story when when the angel greeted Mary, how did he greet her? Oh, favored one. Now keep in mind, this is a 15, 16, maybe 17-year-old girl. What made Mary, a young nobody in the middle of nowhere, favored by God? Because she wasn't important. No, 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 the important people were in Jerusalem. Even today, I was debating on contrasting uh, Herod with Jesus because you'd look at Herod's story and it's one of political maneuvering, of insecure tyranny. He put three of his children to death because he thought they were building up um, a resistance, a rebellion, and trying to take his throne. And his favorite wife, which he regretted. I mean, I guess good on him, but... And he is called Herod the Great. Right at the same time that you see this story. But I realized I didn't have time for it. I don't have time for it now. That's just a little teaser, I guess. I don't know. You thought you, you came to the movies and I gave you a little teaser. Just food for thought. <clears throat> so what made Mary a nobody in the middle of nowhere, favored by God? Well, she gave us the answer. You see a little, you see a little, a picture of it in the first story, but when you look at her song, she gives you the answer. You have looked upon the humble estate of your servant. She was a humble servant. Humble, meaning she wasn't self-seeking or self-serving and a servant. I'm just a willing vessel of God. Of no family standing, no natural importance, no wealth, and nobody nowhere is favored by God. And it's just simply a humble servant. And Luke here is introducing the whole frame of his gospel, the upside down kingdom of God. That what you think is valuable and important, Jesus just turns it on its head. How did salvation, the most important act of salvation, work in the midst of the earth through a humble servant? And it introduced the whole frame for the way of Jesus. Humble servanthood.
And that's the answer to salvation in our day. I mean, it's not a great political speech, but well, like, what are the answers to all these problems? Truthfully, I don't know. I'm sure there's good ideas and important things we can do, but none of it will work. And if any of it works, it will not last another generation. And I can guarantee Christ, the Christian faith will not make it in this country, in the next generation, if a church, and more than a single church, but enough churches truly commit themselves to humble servanthood. Of anything else, that's the way of Jesus. Because the arrogant proud might get natural success, but God will flip them upside down. And who does God elevate? The humble. Just if you're a studier, compare and contrast Mary's song in Luke 1 with Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, and then superimpose Psalm 113 on top of that. Psalm 113 is also part of a larger group, Psalm 113 to 118, that's read at Passover. Okay, public service announcement over. So, of all the things and all the strategies and all the whatever, that's going to ensure the Christian faith makes it to our children and our grandchildren. You're not going to be able to be in control. Like you're not going to be able to control your kids or grandkids. So stop trying. That's pride and God resists it. Stop it. Because trust me, if you could control your children or grandchildren into the Christian faith, there's an enemy who's way more manipulative than you that can manipulate them out of it. We have to be content with the beauty of the gospel. And the beauty of the Christian life is not found in trying to grasp for power, grasp for importance, grasp for influence. But, it, but an open-handed, humble servanthood to just be a willing vessel for God, who is our king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Who gets in on the salvation? The humble servant. Who, like Mary, says, what you say goes? What you say, according to your word, I'm your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. I don't know if that's a church growth strategy, but it's the way of Jesus. And this is part of the reason why we, we come to the table so consistently is, is because we have to be reminded of the way of Jesus. Because none of the world around you is giving you the way of Jesus. It's trying to convince you of another way. It's trying to make you afraid. Fear sells. It, it, it is the currency of all 24-hour news channels. 
pick a group, find what they're afraid of, and run every headline to ensure they stay afraid. It's how many, not all, many politicians run on a platform that's cleverly devised in so many other ways, but it's to make you afraid, to feel insecure, to feel out of control, and that if you elect them and they implement their policies, you'll get control back. And I'm just reminded of Psalm 146 that says, put not your hope in princes. When they die, their plans go with them. So in coming to the table, I want to have in mind Philippians chapter 2. That I think indirectly communicates the incarnation, why we celebrate Christmas and not Herod's birthday or Caesar Augustus' birthday. The rich and the powerful. If anybody was going to make it in the world, it would be Caesar Augustus. The dude was rich and powerful and a god. Or Herod the Great who coincidentally died within a year of Jesus' birth. I'm going to read Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I'm going to read it in the Passion Translation. I feel like Brian Simmons really captures some heart in his paraphrase here. Verse 1, Philippians 2. Look at how much encouragement you found in your relationship with the anointed one. You're filled to overflowing with his comforting love. You have experienced a deepening friendship with the Holy Spirit and have felt his tender affection and mercy. So I'm asking you, my friends, that you be joined together in perfect unity with one heart, one passion, and united in one love. Walk together with one harmonious purpose And you will fill my heart with unbounded joy. Be free from pride-filled opinions. For they will only harm your cherished unity. Don't allow self-promotion to hide in your hearts. But in authentic humility, put others first and view others as more important than yourselves. Abandon every display of selfishness. Possess a greater concern for what matters to others instead of your own interests. Unless you think this is just a heartless command of people who'll never measure up. Verse 5, consider the example of Jesus, the anointed one, has set before us. Let his mindset become your motivation. Well, what was his mindset? He existed in the form of God, yet gave no thought to seizing or grasping equality with God as his supreme prize. Instead, he emptied himself of his outward glory by reducing himself to the form of a lowly servant. He became human. 
He humbled himself and became vulnerable, choosing to be revealed as a man and was obedient. In a sense, following his mother's example. I mean, obviously he's the word incarnate, but like he was a real baby, which means like the son, the eternal son of God chose to be vulnerable as a baby, which means be emptied himself. He emptied himself of his like, not just his like ethereal glory, but like his intelligence and, and, and allowed himself to be a newborn with the level of maturity and intelligence of a newborn. And so he, he learned how to live, yes, from his heavenly father, but from his earthly parents as well. He was a perfect example, even in his death, a criminal's death by crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God exalted him and multiplied his greatness. He has now been given the greatest of all names. The authority of the name of Jesus causes every knee to bow in reverence. Everything and everyone will one day submit to, his, to this name in the heavenly realm, in the earthly realm, and in the demonic realm. And every tongue will proclaim in every language, Jesus Christ is Lord Yahweh, bringing glory and honor to God, his Father. The church and the people of God simply anticipate that future by giving that surrender today. And this is how I'm convinced the faith passes on to our children, is that enough people commit themselves to following Jesus in such a way that we become humble servants as well. Simple vessels in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, our King. And because it was his mindset, his mind is in you. And we can choose, do we want to live in the reality of everything's going wrong, it's only getting worse, and we don't have any legitimate answers to it. Or the reality that in spite of that, God is at work, working salvation, working Jesus in the midst of the earth. And the people who experience it are the people who follow the way of Jesus to simply say, just as Jesus was a humble servant, so I'll live as a humble servant. It may not look like social media influence. It may not look like power or natural authority. But we live from another time. The time where God exalts, even though now it seems like we just have to stay underneath. I, I do believe that we're entering a great awakening. What in the world is that gonna mean? Is it gonna mean that people are gonna have good church services? Well, I mean, I hope that happens. I mean, we don't gather for nothing. Does it mean that I'm going to have just great spiritual experiences? Well, how come previous generations' great spiritual experiences didn't last? And the culture is still where it's at. 
Something more is needed. A great awakening happens when the church awakens to the way of Jesus, which is, you know what? If it costs me my life, I'm willing to give it for the sake of the name of Jesus.